Welcome to your daily affirmations. Repeat after me, working with others is easier than ever. I strive for perfect collaboration. Our teamwork keeps getting better. Yeah, affirmations are great, but Monday.com can really get you the teamwork you desire. Work together easily and share files, updates, data, and just about anything you want all in one platform. Affirm yes to start. Or tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on ChumbaCasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. VGW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. And I'd like to tell you that we have a new and improved website. It has two new features that we think you'll love. One of them is a vastly improved search engine so that when you type in keywords, you'll get a bunch of episodes really quick. The other is the ability to create a listener account. And in that listener account, you can save episodes for later listening. So you can create a kind of listening list. We think these features are neat and we think you'll enjoy them. Please visit the site today. Hello once again, and welcome to New Books in the American West, a channel on the New Books Network. I'm your host, Stephen Hausman. We're speaking today with Dr. Victoria Lamont, Associate Professor of English at the University of Waterloo. We'll be discussing her new book, Westerns, a Women's History, which came out with the University of Nebraska Press in 2016. Welcome to the New Books Network, Victoria. Thank you. First, why don't you tell us about yourself? What is your academic background, and what path did you take to becoming a scholar of literature? Uh, I grew up in uh, a sort of middle-sized city in um, Alberta called Edmonton. Um, So it's a sort of Western location, kind of middle-class family. Um, And I was always good at English. Uh, I won the English award in high school, Um, was a a good writer and liked to write, uh, liked to read, um, and I just couldn't imagine doing anything else. So I just, I did a bachelor in English and then I didn't want to stop. So I just kept going. <laughs> and uh, yeah, that's how I ended up being an English professor. It sounds like you got the bug early and just uh, yeah. didn't, didn't let go of you. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. So what got you interested in the topic of Westerns as a genre for uh, a monograph topic then? Uh, I've been uh, studying Westerns uh, since I uh, did my master's degree with uh, Christine Bold at the University of Guelph. Um, You might have heard of her recent book, The Frontier Club, Um, just a a really important and fantastic book. And um, one of my first graduate courses was uh, with Christine, and it was called Women in the West. And um, Christine also uh, introduced me to the study of popular culture. It didn't occur to me that an, um, uh, that uh, the English literary discipline could also include studying popular texts. And um, I've always been sort of a TV junkie. And um, uh, the other thing that um, got me interested in Westerns was just this uh, uh, or women's westerns was just the learning um, how many women actually wrote westerns, um, and that fascinated me as well. Um, and these women were um, uh, almost unknown to us uh, today, but some of them were very well known in their own day. And um, it was just an open field; nobody had read this stuff, and that was really exciting to me to. Um, study uh, this body of text that um, had been forgotten for, you know, over a hundred years. So it it was um, just uh, the prospect of of that discovery was also very exciting to me. So um, and I've been so I've been uh, working on women's westerns uh, since uh, doing my master's degree. 
So before we get into some of the arguments that you make in the book, mm -hmm. let's 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 step back a little bit and start sure. with the kind of traditional story of sure. the development of the genre of the the western. What are some of the more typically canonical names and book titles that that we hear about, and how do how did they become mm -hmm. the kind of the bedrock in the in this kind of traditional narrative about the genre's development? Uh, well, the story of the western um, typically starts with uh, James Fenimore Cooper, um, who wrote Last of the Mohicans and a bunch of other um, novels about a character called Leatherstocking um, or Hawkeye. Um, there have been films made about him. Um, and uh, so he was writing in the early 1800s. Um, and then uh, in the early 1900s, um, a writer called Owen Wister kind of updated um, his story um, and uh, created a cowboy character called the Virginian, um, who was the progenitor of the um, Western hero of the 20th century. Um, so the dominant narrative has, has typically um, uh, revolved around uh, male frontier heroes, um, usually uh, rescuing uh, innocent or um, helpless, um, virtuous women from various threats um, or protecting towns from various threats. Um, and so the role of the woman in the um, canonical or the sort of classic Western, if you want to call it, is kind of an object of desire and an object of rescue, but she doesn't really have any agency in her own right. And um, Westerns are typically thought to be written primarily by um, about and for men. So that's the um, kind of canonical story. And still to this day, when I tell women, uh, when I tell people that um, I study women writers of Westerns, um, they uh, often say, oh, I didn't know women wrote Westerns. Uh, um, uh, so yeah, that's the kind of uh, canonical story of the Western, if you will. But as as you've already said, that story leaves quite a bit out. And really the core argument of this book is that the, the list of, of authors and books that you just mentioned um, omits several women writers who contributed to the genre's conventions and to its popularity as well. Um, yeah. And, and a lot of the yeah. writers that you talk about in the book were popular in their own right in the, at their time. So before yeah. talking about who some of these writers are, why first do you think they were left out of the genre's history? Uh it's kind of a complicated story. <laughs> hmm. um, but if I was to kind of make a long story short, I would say that around uh, Western stories were not exclusively masculine terrain until um, the pulp magazines of the 1920s. Um, and what happened in the in the pulp magazines was they uh, they started to um, kind of develop the uh, genre categories that are familiar to us today. And part of creating genres um, involved um, targeting to the, them towards narrowly defined groups. Um, and particularly gendered groups. So you saw pulp magazines arise that were targeted towards young male readers, and you saw other genres targeted towards young women readers. And this really didn't happen until the 1920s. Um, and the Western kind of split into, uh, prior to this time, Westerns had been written by both men and women, um, and published in the same publications. Um, and then uh, as this gendering process happened in the 1920s, um, Westerns were subdivided into the action-adventure Western, which was marketed to male readers, and the romance Western, which was marketed primarily towards women readers. Um, and... Uh, 
skip later, a, f- a few decades later, um, w- uh, when uh, scholars started um, deciding that the Western was worthy of study, um, and they tended to look at the action-adventure Western as the kind of original Western um, and see the romance Western as the copy or as the imitation, um, as not really authentic, even though the two genres emerged simultaneously. And so the scholars um, in the kind of 50s and 60s, when they started constructing a, a canon of the popular Western, singled out um, uh, pe- figures like Owen Wister, Louis L'Amour, Max Brand, and that, uh, in terms of scholarship, became known as the um, kind of history of the winter Western centered around these figures, and the women pretty much dropped out of that narrative. Well, let's get in then to some of the the works that you analyze and critique in your book. And let's Mm -hmm. talk first about Emma Ghent Curtis. Who was she Uh (laughs) and what brought her to write stories about the American West? She was fascinating. Yeah, she really was. I I loved that (laughs) section of the book. It was was really interesting. Uh, So um, Emma Ghent Curtis was a uh, woman suffragist in Colorado Um, An interesting story of how I discovered her stuff was I was reading a book about women's suffrage in the West, and I decided, and I asked myself, I wonder if any of these uh, women suffragists actually wrote fiction or novels. So I ran them through some databases, and Emma Ghent Curtis came up as having written two novels. Um, and so I tracked them down on microfilm, and um, they both turned out to be about um, cowboys, um, but they were also pro-woman suffrage novels. Uh, so she was a woman suffragist in Colorado, um, and she wrote her novels um, as um, a means of promoting women's suffrage in the West. Um, and uh, so she, her, her protagonist in the administratrix um, is a heroic cowboy, um, has a lot of the characteristics that we associate with the cowboy, sort of um, humble origins, a man of few words, um, chivalrous, uh, has a kind of innate sense of morality and justice and and he's also though a woman suffrage advocate and so um uh, uh at various parts in the novel he talks about how poorly women are treated and um how if they had the vote they could really do a lot to kind of improve their own um situation and um so uh, I imagine that she probably wrote this novel had and, and gave it away or sold it um, at women's suffrage functions. Um, she was a very prominent member of her community. When she died, there was a – the whole town came out to her funeral. She was a well-known political activist, and she just – used her writing as um, a way to promote her politics, um, much like uh, sort of following the model of Harriet Beecher Stowe and Uncle Tom's Cabin, um, uh, using writing fiction as a way of getting people to change their minds about um, entrenched beliefs and ideas uh, was a very um, uh, uh uh, common phenomenon in the 19th century. And so she was following on that um, tradition. Can you tell us a little bit more about uh, Curtis's book, The Administratrix, and <laughs> um, and what, what the story is in that book and what you argue in the book, what it reveals about Curtis sure. herself and what people like her thought about the American West more generally? Sure. So um, 
the administratrix, the title of the work, it's an odd title. Yeah, it, um, it doesn't really connote the West or cowboys or any. And um, incidentally, it was published uh, more than 10 years before Owen Wister's uh, The Virginian. And it includes a lot of the same tropes that we associate with the Virginian and attribute to Owen Wister. And it turns out that Emma Gent Curtis was um, uh, using these tropes uh, 10 years earlier. Um, but the, so the administratrix is about a young woman who is um, from the East Coast. She moves to a Western town to improve her health uh, she uh, gets a job as a school teacher. Um, uh, she's from a kind of genteel, upper class, privileged background. Uh, she meets this cowboy who is kind of rugged and not quite up to her class, and she resists him, but he ultimately wins her over. Um, so it's a very similar story um, to the um, story in the Virginian, which also involves a romance between a kind of upper class um, school teacher and a local cowboy who's sort of beneath her station socially, but turns out to have a kind of natural nobility that um, both of the heroines in these stories recognize. Um, and then what happens in the administration, it kind of makes a, a, a very kind of unusual turn in the plot um, because the cowboy hero is um, murdered by a local group of uh, – by a, a rival ranch um, because he's such a successful rancher that he becomes a threat to the surrounding ranches. And so he is lynched and murdered. And um, so his widow uh, decides that to get revenge, she's going to disguise herself as a cowboy and infiltrate the ranch where she suspects her um, husband's murderers are residing um, and she so she becomes a cowhand <laughs> at the neighboring ranch and kind of spies on them and finds out who exactly um, uh, murdered her husband and waits for the right time they're out on a roundup and um, confronts her husband's murderers uh, uh, she's armed and um, uh, basically uh, uh, um, gets revenge. She, she kills them in a kind of violent and uh, sort of very melodramatic shootout. Um, so it's a really... Um, uh, when I first read it, I was just blown away by this book um, the the cross dressing, the woman gunfighter, and of course now we see women gunfighters um, in all kinds of um, of the neo westerns. Westworld, for example, has um, a woman gunfighter in it. But uh, at this time, this period in the eighteen eighties, late eighteen eighties, it was just unheard of, um, and uh, so uh, I was immediately just captivated by this story. Yeah, and uh, after reading the, the the chapters that you spend on Curtis and the Administratrix, I was mm -hmm. kind of surprised it hadn't been made into a movie yet because that ending is so dramatic <laughs> and, and and is so it seems very cinematic. So it seems it yeah. seems ripe for for some some producer to pick up on. Yeah, for sure. So tell us next about let's let's talk about cattle wrestling a little bit. Okay, that's sure. Another, that's another important part of both kind of the the, the mythos of the American West yes. and within the genre of the Western itself. So tell us first what cattle wrestling is, um, yeah. and uh, how how and why it's a recurring theme both in some of the more well known westerns and in some of the lesser known texts that you describe in your book. Um. Well, in terms of the Western myth. Cattle wrestling, cattle wrestling has been represented as the kind of um, classic struggle 
of good against evil. And so the cattle rustlers are generally depicted as criminals. They're lazy. Um, they're not hardworking. And they're going after the hardworking rancher and stealing their cattle. Um, and the only way to stop them is um, through vigilante justice. Uh, generally, in these kinds of narratives, the courts are ineffective, um, and the cattle wrestlers, if they're um, taken, if they go to trial, the juries are too afraid um, to convict them, and so they. Um, uh, the only way to uh, for uh, justice to prevail is through vigilante justice. Um, and so in the Virginian, for example, there's a very um, climactic um, scene in which the main character um, has to uh, lynch his best friend who, uh, because his best friend has turned cattle rustler. And even though this fellow, um, his name is Steve, is his best friend, he has to set that aside and say, um, justice demands that I hang or participate in the hanging of my best friend. So that's the kind of mythology of cattle wrestling. The reality is a little bit um, murkier. Um, in reality, cattle wrestling um, was the process, it wasn't necessarily about stealing um, because in those days you had um, unfenced ranges with cattle that belonged to many different owners in the area and they were they would all get mixed together. Um, now obviously the every spring um, the the cattle would be rounded up and branded. Um, with the brand of whatever ranch they belong to. And, uh, but of course, sometimes you missed one. And so there would be unbranded cattle uh, wandering around on the range. And um, these unbranded cattle were considered the um, property of whoever found them. And so cowboys... Uh, to kind of get ahead would go out to rustle up some cattle, right? They would go out and look for unbranded cattle um, uh, because that was pretty much the only way that a cattle could start his own, uh, a cowboy, sorry, could start his own herd. Um, but uh, uh, cattle wrestling became a kind of bone of contention um, as the cattle industry became threatened by a series of bad winters, um, kind of an unsustainable economic model. Um, and so ranchers um, experienced uh, a, a lot more losses of their herds. And so these unbranded cattle became more and more valuable. And cowboys who owned cattle became more and more of a threat. Um, so one way to um, uh, kind of um, uh, uh, um, sort of counter the threat of the cowboys who were um, running their own cattle herds uh, was to accuse them of being wrestlers. And then you could sort of set them up on trumped up charges um, and um, many of them were were lynched um, and so that's the sort of uh, so cattle wrestling was much more of a gray area um, in reality and um, some of the women writers that I've studied actually take that on um, and they see cattle wrestling as um, more of a form of class struggle um, than a form of good against evil. And um, they, so they, their stories of cattle rustling um, are much more complicated and kind of realistic in the way that they treat that history. 
you also mentioned the importance of branding in yeah. um, in the cattle industry, and branding comes up again and again as a theme in a couple of the the, the works that you talk about in your book. Mm-hmm. If I remember correctly, particularly in the context of marriage, I think yeah. you talk about yeah. Could you tell us a little bit more about that? Why branding is this important theme that is reoccurring throughout some of the works that you cover? Uh, well, um, I noticed in. Um, several of the women-authored Westerns um, that they really pay attention to branding as a kind of metaphor. Um, uh, and um, so they focus... B.M. Uh, Bauer, for example, she's got a novel called Lonesome Land, and she spends a lot of time in that book drawing this analogy between... Um, the branding of the female cow as this kind of piece of property. Um, and um, she identifies that figure with the figure of the married woman, um, who's also kind of figures as a piece of property in patriarchal marriage. And I noticed that that trope runs through its um, several of these novels that I've, that um, uh uh, uh, of westerns written by women, so they they took on um, cattle branding as a kind of feminist trope, um, and they used it as a way of um, critiquing uh, patriarchal um, marriage. Um, there's another uh, there's another another novel by uh, Frances McElrath. Um, that also deals with um, ca- the cattle branding trope and with cattle rustling. And um, in there's a love relationship in that text between a cowboy and, same thing, a young school teacher. And he proposes to her. He, uh, uh, she turns him down. And he becomes disillusioned and becomes a cattle rustler. And then he kidnaps her. So she is identified with the rustled um, cattle. And so there's a very explicit analogy drawn between the idea of a woman as property um, and the explicit way in which cows are also treated as property. You mentioned B.M. Bauer. Can you tell us about her and how... Um, her experience and her story speaks to what you call the myth of the pseudonym in the genre of the Western? Uh, sure. So B.M. Bauer, uh, B.M. stood for Bertha Muzzy Bauer. And she was the first writer to really popularize the Western. She um, had a novel published in 1904 called Chip of the Flying U. And it was a huge success, and um, she got a contract with Popular Magazine to write um, the uh, the equivalent of two novels a year, um, plus dozens of short stories. And she wrote um, uh, prolifically until she died in 1940. Um, And she was... Uh, she preceded a lot of the male figures that we associate with the popular Western, specifically Zane Gray, um, but also people like Louis L'Amour, Max Brand, that we kind of uh, identify as the ones who popularized the Western. But it was actually a woman. It was Bertha Muzzy Bauer that was the first woman to sort of take that story of the the cowboy, um, the cattle frontier, um, and uh, turn it into a a, a, a a formulaic genre, if you will. Um, and um, she, uh, so her publisher um, insisted um, upon her publishing under her initials, and just letting the readers assume that B. M. Bauer was a man. And so she published under the signature B.M. Bauer for the rest of her life. Um, And she really hated that. Uh, She really wanted people to know that she was that it was a woman who was um, uh, writing these 
incredibly popular um, uh, books. And she really resented that her publishers wouldn't let her kind of um, do any publicity. Um, but what I found about pseudonyms, there was this huge assumption that people would make about uh, women's Westerns that they all wrote under pseudonyms because it was a masculine genre and that there's no way that they could publish as women unless they use pseudonyms. But that's actually not true. Uh, B.M. Bauer was the only uh, Western writer, women Western writer that I've worked on that was forced to use a or sort of not uh, basically forced, I guess, to use a pseudonym. Um, and the reason that her publisher did that was um, because she was so successful that they wanted to control her brand. And the way to do that um, was to not allow her to do any publicity, not allow her to gain any kind of celebrity status. Um, because if you had celebrity status at that time, then you had a little bit more leverage over your publisher. And maybe you could go to a different publisher or maybe you could get more money. Um, the film industry was doing the same thing at the time. It was um, not allowing its uh, or resisting um uh, allowing its actors and actresses to um, publicize themselves um, because it would give them more leverage over the studios. Um, so it wasn't really that B.M. Bauer was a, that it wasn't only about the fact that she was a woman writing in this um, so-called masculine genre, um, but it was more about uh, how um, popular she was. And um, so because of that, her publishers just really wanted to control um, her name. Um, and the less celebrity she had, the more they could control her. Um, if you look at other women who were publishing Westerns at this time, not, they did, none of them used um, pseudonyms. Uh, Carolyn Lockhart is an example. Um, another uh, writer called um, Vinji Rowe, um, Frances McElrath, Emma Gent Curtis. None of these women saw their gender as the kind of liability that um, would, um, would mean that people wouldn't read their stuff. And um, in fact, um, B.M. Bauer uh, was well known in the local communities where she lived. She was well known as being the author of the B.M. Bauer books. And that was not scandalous to anyone. And um, B.M. Bauer tried at various times in her life to convince her publisher to let her do publicity. And she would say, you know, she was living in California in the 20s, and um, everyone in California knew that B.M. Bauer was um, Bertha Muzzy Bauer, and nobody was scandalized by it. Nobody was saying, oh, I'm never going to read another Bauer book again. And she would write to her publisher and say, listen, it's not a big deal. Why don't you let me do publicity? And they just would not let her do it. Um, but uh, the idea that... Um, uh, women could only write under pseudonyms is, uh, is a myth. It only really applies to Bauer. Toward the end of the book, you asked the mm -hmm. question, why did Morning Dove write a Western? Oh, so yes. tell us who was Morning Dove and how do you answer that question? Uh, uh, Morning Dove was, um, a, uh, member of the um, Colville Reservation um, in Washington State. And um, she, uh, from a young age, um, she her tribe was the Okanagan. She was a Salish speaker. Um, from a young age, she was fascinated by um, books and... Uh, fiction, novels. She liked to read dime novels um, when she was young. And um, she, uh, uh, by the time she was, I think, 
She must have been maybe in her early 20s. She had gone to business school to Calgary, Alberta, so that she can learn how to type, um, so that she could write a novel and um, get it published. And so she wrote a novel called Kojawea. Uh She wrote it as early as 1914, um, but she didn't have the connections that you would need to um, get it published at the time. Um, so she um, kind of, I, I guess it kind of sat around until um, she met uh, a white activist called Lucillus McWhorter. Um, and he's the one that he found out that she had written a novel. Um, and at that time, it was believed that this was the first novel uh, written by an Indigenous woman. Uh, it wasn't, but uh, he decided that he would um, uh, help her get it published. And so that's what he did. And after many years, um, they finally managed to get it published in, um, I think, 1928. Um, now, Kojui is a is interesting um, because it does use a lot of Western tropes, um, which you would kind of think intuitively the Western has a long history of being an anti-Indigenous genre. It's a It dramatizes, um, a part of what it does is dramatize kind of stereotypes about Indigenous people as being savages, um, as being... Um, as, as sort of a disappearing race, they're on their way out, they're a dying race. So why would um, Morning Dove gravitate towards that genre? And what I argue in my book is that um, despite its kind of history as this colonial narrative, it's um, a more attractive alternative to a writer, to an Indigenous writer who's trying to reach that white audience, um, it's, a, it's a better alternative than the genres that Indigenous writers were encouraged to write by publishers. Um, they were encouraged to write something called salvage ethnography, which was basically their job was to sort of document this this race that was believed to be disappearing. Um, and so um, it was the Indigenous writer's job to sort of document their traditions, their beliefs, their folktales, etc., um, because they needed to be preserved um, because the culture was on its way out. It was obsolete. Um, they, Indigenous people, would be assimilated and their cultures were um, just not going to exist anymore. Um, and um, Morning Dove uh, just did not buy that. And the thing about the Western um, narrative um, is that it enabled Morning Dove to tell a different story, um, to tell the story of the Indigenous person in a modern context, because it dealt with that um, kind of moment of conflict um, between the colonizer and the Indigenous tribes. And so she appropriated the Western and indigenized it, um, used it to tell that's the story of the colonial experience. Um, salvage ethnography, they didn't want to see or they didn't want to hear the story of the modern indigenous person. They wanted to hear the story of the kind of um, the, the pre-contact, um, pure, authentic, I, of course, I'm using scare quotes around all these words, uh, right. but this idea of this um, authentic um, Indigenous cultures not touched by, um, uh, uh, by contact with the European. Um, and, but the Western really enabled um, Morning Dove to, to tell that story. Um, of um, the indigenous people in the modern world. So that's why I think she wrote a Western. 
And one of the more uh, fascinating parts of, of Morning Dove's uh, novel uh, that you describe is that she really takes the, at, at this point in the early 20th century, the, the budding field of anthropology and of salvage ethnography. She takes it to task within the book itself. She does, yeah. The, the villain in the book um, comes to the reservation where the um, protagonist, Kojuia, lives. And he ha- he gets this idea. He's, so he's, a, um, he's an Easterner, an Eastern tenderfoot. Um, and he gets the idea that Kojuia, it must be very wealthy um, because this is the period of the, uh, when a lot of reservation land was being divided up into parcels and then, um, given to individuals in allotments. And so the villain believes that Kojuia has a huge allotment and he wants to get his hands on it. And so he decide he tries to seduce Kojuia and the way that he seduces her is, um, by pretending to be fascinated with her culture. And he says, please just tell me your stories. I want to learn more about you. I'm more, I'm so fascinated by your culture. And to me, this kind of dramatizes, um, the, the colonial situation, um, that Morning Dove's community is in. Um, because on the one hand, the colonizers are sending their representatives to the reservations to collect, um, to write down the traditions and the stories and the belief systems and to witness rituals and so on. So they're pretending to have this fascination with the culture. Um, But on the other hand, the colonizer is actively creating the conditions that are destroying that culture by going after the resources, the land um, that the indigenous people are living on. Um, And so this relate this kind of political um, situation is dramatized through that relationship between um, Kojuia and um, this villain. Earlier in the podcast, um, Mm -hmm. you described the process by which the genre of the Western became masculinized throughout the early 20th century. Yeah. Could could I ask you to kind of reflect a little bit on maybe the state of the genre here in the early 21st century? Do you think that's changed at all, uh, sort of across um, mediums, media from TV to literature to movies? Is the genre still a primarily masculine genre as it's presented in popular culture? Do you th- or do you think that's changed somewhat over the, the last hundred years or so <laughs> of Westerns? Um, yeah, I think it has changed. Um, or rather, it's not so much that it's changed, but I, I think the... the um, it's it's becoming what it's always been, if that makes huh. any sense. Yeah, it does. It does. <laughs> um, I'm looking at uh, uh, a series like Westworld, um, where uh, female figures are front and center um, in that series. Um, there have been quite a few um, Western films produced that do feature um, uh female protagonist, but it's not just about the female protagonist, but it's also about the kinds of ideologies and the um, kind of philosophy that underpins the narrative. And that is something that's being um, uh, disrupted in a lot of the more recent Westers. I love the idea in Westworld of um, this, um, uh, the, the sort of pure virtuous, um, uh, uh, female on the frontier who gradually over the course of the series transforms into a gunfighter. And that's exactly the narrative that uh, um, Emma Gent Curtis uh, write, wrote about in 1889. So it's kind of the same. Um, so there's something familiar to me about these uh, women-centered Westerns that um, we're seeing. Um, but I don't think it's the case that um, we have this sort of new feminist Western that's 
um, finally been allowed to emerge. I think it's 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 something that's always been there within the the genre. And what happens um, is that that kind of feminist impulse in the genre keeps emerging, and then it gets kind of written out of the history of the genre and then it emerges again and that you know and so um even now we see it um kind of come uh we see these feminist westerns happening and the discourse around them kind of treats them like they're this anomaly instead of um a kind of story that westerns have been telling from the very beginning that might actually serve as an answer to this next question. But okay. if there is one takeaway that you hope readers come away from your book with, what would that be? Yeah. Um, one takeaway. Um, this is always a hard question when I ask it towards the end of, <laughs> of my interviews because it's, it's a big one. So take some time to think it. It's okay. Um, uh, well, it's, it's, it's a... Well, there's many takeaways, so it's hard to kind of um, arrive, or it's hard to just single out um, just one. But I guess I'd like them. I I would like them to um, go and read these women. Um, I guess I'd like these women to be read by more than just scholars like me. But I'd like them. I'd like be uh, just lay readers or general read- readers fans of the western um to f- to read us to discover these texts and um i think that can actually to me the genre of the western is enriched um by looking at um all of the sort of tensions and conflicts and diversity that the that the genre can sustain it's not just one story but it's many different stories sort of butting up against each other and colliding with each other um and um you know those 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 diehard kind of Louis L'Amour readers i want them to i i think um their experience of Louis L'Amour can be enriched if they um, go and read um, B. M. Bauer and and or and, and and kind of see those 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 writers in conversation with each other. Um, I don't know. Is that a, is that a takeaway? It's something yes. I'd like them to do. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. It's, it's, a, it's a call to action. I would yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, since this is a book about books, and mm-hmm. since this was thus a, a podcast about books, mm-hmm. um, can you tell us maybe just briefly something or a couple of things that you've read recently, either Westerns or non-Westerns, that you really enjoyed that you might want to recommend to our listeners? Oh, well, in terms of books uh, about Westerns, I mentioned uh, Christine Bold's The Frontier Club. Mm-hmm. Um, that book um, is has just completely cracked open what we thought we knew about the Western and where it came from. So I think that is um, definitely uh, a must read um, if you're interested in um, Westerns. And then um, uh, are you, are you, are you thinking in terms of scholarly books or like really just just anything? You anything know, just because we've been talking about books for for so long. I'm just curious <laughs> what what, you, what you've been into lately. Uh, what I well actually um, for recreational reading, I actually read a lot of contemporary domestic. I guess you would call it tome- contemporary domestic fiction. Mm-hmm. Um, I love books about sort of relationships that um, don't seem like much to the outside, but the people within those relationships, it's, there's a lot going on. And it's, um, so that's what I read when I, it's as far away from my field of study as I can get. And that way I feel like I don't have to take, I don't have to write notes in the margins. I don't have to remember the characters' names. I don't have to read scholarly articles about them. Yeah. So yeah, that's yeah. so that's what I've been um reading. So the one I just finished reading is a book called um 
the mothers. Um, and I can't remember the name. I think it's a relatively new um, writer. Um, and it's, uh, yeah. I'm trying Is it to... by Britt Bennett by any chance? That sounds yes. That's I did a little it. little Google searching while you were while you were thinking out loud. So that, yes, that must be it. yeah. So I just finished um, reading that, and I just loved it. And it's basically about the relationship between um, two women, and it's about how that relationship is mediated by men. Um, but it's really the love between the women that is that um, is what is important. Um, and a very subtle, I found it a very subtle and um, uh, the characters um, very powerful in a really kind of quiet way. So yeah, that's that's what I just finished reading. So now that this book has been out for a couple years, are you working mm -hmm. on anything new? Do you have a, a next project coming down the pike at all? I do. I'm working on a biography of uh, B.M. Bauer. Um, it's just about done. Hopefully, one more, okay. um, uh, one more summer, and I'll be able to finish it. But B.M. Bauer was just a fascinating woman. I was lucky enough to um, meet uh, some of her descendants and look through her papers. Um, and so that's, I've been working on that for, oh, a, a long time. Her grandson is patiently waiting for me to finish it. <laughs> um, he helped me a lot, um, told me a lot of stories and shared a lot of family history and, um, papers with me. So that's what I'm working on right now. Well, best of luck as that heads into the home stretch. Thank you so much. Victoria Lamont is an associate professor of English at the University of Waterloo, and her new book is Westerns, A Women's History, which came out with the University of Nebraska Press in 2016. Thanks again for coming on the show today, Victoria. Thanks for having me. Ryan here and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, avoid, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.